one of the pastors here at Redemption. And this morning we're going to continue on in our um, trek through the book of Ephesians. And specifically we're going to talk about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and turn there, um, we'll get started with that in just a second. Um, and our topic this morning specifically is, is the topic of work or our vocation, um, our job, things that we have to do. Um, before we get started, uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Do we have any never-ending story fans out there? Anybody? Thank you. Right. Well, my daughters watched the never-ending story that yesterday for the first time. And um, last night, before my five-year-old went to bed, she looked at my wife and said, Mommy, tonight I'm going to dream about me and you flying through the air on Falcor. It was awesome. Right. So, <clears throat> specifically, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 is what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to pray for us uh, as we get started, and then we'll work our way through that passage. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here so far this morning. God, thank you for just the short amount of time we've had to uh, sing a little bit, be together, um, talk, drink some coffee, eat some donuts. God, over the next few minutes as we hear from you, as we listen to your word, um, God, as I have the opportunity to expound on that for, for, just, for just a little while here, God, I pray that you would continue to work in our midst that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what it is you would have us say, that we would walk away from here being changed because of what you've spoken to us, having something to apply to our lives. And Holy Father, I pray very specifically that during this time, you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel of your love. God, I fully recognize that my words are of little significance God, what you would have to say to us is of great significance. And so, God, let us hear from you. pray that you would move me out of the way, that Jesus would be raised high. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, just a couple of quotes about work here. Robert Frost once said, By working faithfully eight hours a day, you may eventually get to be the boss and work 12 hours a day. Mark Twain said, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. And perhaps my favorite, Oscar Wilde said, work is the curse of the drinking class. And yet, God's Word has something entirely different to say about work. Let me read you just a couple of passages from God's Word. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 6, starting in verse 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So work is something that we all do. We all have a job. And if we don't have a job, we work at home. We take care of kids. We 
do volunteer stuff in the nursery. We come early and set up on Sunday mornings. There's all types of ways that you and I work. And this morning, our specific topic is work and worship. So how does our work play into our worship? And so if I were to ask you the question, what is worship, what would your answer back to me be? Would you say worship is when we gather together on Sunday morning? It's when the band leads us in singing. Is that what worship is? Is it being engaged by a sermon? If that was your goal, you came to the wrong place this morning. So you have to listen to me. But is worship being engaged by a sermon? Is it meeting together as a church family on Sunday morning? Is worship when you spend time alone with God, reading your Bible and praying, reflecting, repenting, whatever it may be? B, what is worship? And that's on a very practical level. On a more doctrinal or philosophical level, there's some definitions of worship we can look at. D.A. Carson said, Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their Creator God, precisely because He is worthy, delightfully so. John Piper said, The inner experience of being wholly satisfied in God, in Jesus Christ, is what worship is. Somebody else has defined worship as a private act that has two parts. Seeing what God is worth and ascribing Him what He's worth. And so today when we leave here, we're all going to go somewhere else. We're going to be away from church. We're going to be away from our church body. And and me, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do what most of you guys are going to do. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to spend time with my family uh, if I'm lucky, I'm going to get a work in, a workout in this afternoon to, you know, this body, this athletic body, take care of it. And I'm going to lounge around the house a bit, and I'm going to enjoy my day, and hopefully tonight for dinner, eat some good food. But tomorrow morning, my day is going to start at 6 a.m. I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to take the dog outside so that she can use the bathroom, and then I'm going to start getting ready for my day. I'm going to help get my kids ready, and by 8 o'clock, I'm going to be sitting in my office. I have a job working for the city of Augusta. I do IT work specifically for public safety and law enforcement departments. So folks like the sheriff's office and the fire department and 911 and things like that, I, I work with them on a daily basis. And so I'm going to go to my office in the morning. And I walk, when I'm walking down the hallway to go to my office, I'm going to pass my boss's office on the left. And I'm going to be reminded that I am an employee, that I'm under someone else's authority, my boss's authority. Because I'm a Christian, because I'm a believer, well, that should affect the way I act as an employee. And as I'm walking down the hallway to to the very last office on the left, which is my office, I'm going to be walking past a couple of offices that guys work in that work under me. And I'm going to be reminded that not only am I an employee and under someone else's authority, I'm going to be reminded that I'm a supervisor and there are other people that work under my authority. And because I'm a Christian, because I'm a believer, because of the gospel, it should affect the way I interact with those guys. And hopefully my day of work at my job, my day of work when I come home, my day of work in regards to this church and whatever else may be will proceed as worship. So let's dive into that a little bit. Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 5 through 9. Let's read it. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, here at Redemption Church, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. We believe the Bible to be the inspired, authoritative, infallible Word of God. And to be honest, if you have that belief, sometimes when you encounter things in Scripture, it, it causes some difficulty when you first read them. And this passage is one of those things. The context of this passage Uh, the context of this passage forces me to step back for a minute and sort of evaluate what's going on here. It forces me to go, did I just read what I think I read? And the context of this passage is Paul is speaking very specifically to slaves and masters. And the word for bondservant used here by Paul can be translated as slave. It can be translated as something like an indentured servant. And so when you read that, it forces me to take a step back and talk about a topic that's not really easily talked about, or at least the context of this passage. I think we at least have to address it before we go forward. Because in our culture, in our society, even in this very city, slavery is a very horrible historical reality. There's a, a major national evangelical denomination that started in this city precisely because there was a split in that denomination over whether pastors and missionaries could be slave owners back before the Civil War. And so when we read the word servant or slave or bondservant in Scripture, we immediately interpret those words in light of the historical reality that still plays a light, or it still plays a role in our culture and our society. We've seen lots of movies come out about it just recently. Lincoln... Django Unchained, if any of you have seen those movies. Atlanta is known as one of the largest sex trafficking cities in the entire United States. It's a huge problem. And just a couple of weeks ago, we heard the amazing story of three young women who were rescued in Cleveland after being enslaved for ten years. And so we recognize through the lens of our experience that slavery as we understand it is not a good thing. It's a morally horrible thing. And the sort of slavery that happened in our society and our nation's past was utterly wrong, utterly unjust, and utterly unbiblical. There's no way around that. It was racially motivated in a negative way. It was a lifetime status not only for slaves but also for their Children, And it was a system where people were abused and treated as if they were no more than possessions. But we know that people are made by God. People belong to God. People are made with dignity and value and worth because they carry the image of God. And to treat a person as you would a piece of property or livestock, a possession, is to disrespect the image of likeness of God that they bear. That's how slavery in our society was practiced. 1 Timothy 1, 9-11 says this, 
Paul writes, the same Paul who wrote the passage we're dealing with, says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the same Paul who addresses the topic of slavery in Ephesians addresses it in 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 11. And he says, someone who enslaves another person is just like a murderer or a liar. Someone who strikes their mother and father. It's morally reprehensible. In Roman society where Paul was writing this letter to, slavery existed. And in some sense it existed like it did in our nation's past in a morally reprehensible way. You could be enslaved if you were taken as a prisoner of war. I think of the movie Gladiator when I, um, in some sense when I say that, if, if you'll remember that movie, um, Maximus. So there were certainly unjustified and morally uh, reprehensible ways that you could become a slave in Roman society by being taken as a prisoner of war. Um, there was another way that you could become a slave in Roman society. Uh, it was fairly common for babies who were not wanted by their parents to be put out, just left out to die. And so there were people who would come through and collect these babies and raise them to be slaves and raise them to be prostitutes. It's a horrible thing. But in Roman society as well, you could willingly become a slave, a bondservant to someone as a way to pay off a debt. In our society, we have other ways of dealing with debt and bankruptcy and things like that. But in Roman society, it wasn't unheard of to pay off a debt. You go and you become someone's slave for a period of time. Or in Roman society as well, you could become a slave if you were in such a desperate financial situation where you couldn't care for yourself or your family, you could go and willingly become a slave to someone for a set amount of time and so that your family and yourself could be provided for. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 addresses the reality that slavery exists. In First Timothy, he addressed the fact that people who enslave others are wrong. They're sinful by doing that. But in our passage this morning, he simply addresses the fact that slavery exists in that culture and in that society. He doesn't address the ethical issues related to slavery here, but he does acknowledge that it exists. And he provides the framework for both slaves and masters for how they should live in light of the fact that they're believers. And so Paul is not necessarily affirming or condemning slavery in Ephesians chapter 6. He's acknowledging that it exists. And he's saying regardless of your position in life, because of the gospel, there's a framework for your actions and there's a framework for your attitude. Okay? With me? Everybody okay? Anybody angry? You guys look angry. Is it because I sound angry? I'm not angry. So the real question here is, what does any of this have to do with us? What does any of this have to do with me and you? And, and that's a good question, right? Because there's not a one-to-one -one correlation 
between what Paul is saying here and us, but there is a correlation as it relates to our jobs and our work, whether that be our work for someone else, our work for ourselves, our work in the home as a mom or dad, as a child, whatever it may be. So, so ultimately the question here is, does God care about your job? Does God care about your work, whether that be paid work or unpaid work? As an employee, mom, dad, child, volunteer, whatever, that's ultimately the big question. And ultimately we have to step back for a second and say, okay, so our Savior is this guy named Jesus. And for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus worked a job. He was a carpenter. And Jesus' worship didn't begin the day he started preaching, teaching, and healing. Jesus worshiped the day he began obeying as a child, obeying his father and mother, as an employee, working under his father, whatever it may be. And in America... It is part of our cultural identity sometimes to worship our work. Our work is often a means to get somewhere, to get us something else. And so it's not uncommon for us to place our value in what our work ascribes to us, our value in what our work gives us in terms of a paycheck. It's not uncommon. We want to work our way up. And as Christians, we don't worship our work. We worship Jesus. And our work for us is an opportunity to worship Jesus. We want to do a good job as believers in authority and under authority as Jesus was perfectly under authority at one point in time and now perfectly rules in authority. So, so Jesus is our example here. Um, Jesus is our example when it comes to work, when it comes to being under authority, when it comes to being in positions of authority, if that's where God has placed us. And we want to do a good job of those things. Now, now Paul, earlier in Ephesians, right, we're working through Ephesians, so early in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul reminds us that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then in Ephesians 2, 10, right after that, he tells us that we're saved to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And, and those good works, some of those good works are part of your job, right? Are you a graphic designer, a doctor, a student, an accountant, a salesperson, whatever? Those are the good works or those are part of the good works that Christ has prepared in advance for you to do. Are you a stay-at-home mom? Do you take care of kids all day? You're a construction worker who has boots and a truck and a lunchbox and a tool belt. Well, then you're kind of like Jesus. I don't think Jesus had a truck yet, but. Are you a banker? Are you a CEO? Are you a missional community leader? Those are the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. Do you make widgets? Do you sell books? Do you dig ditches? It's all worship. All of it. So, relationship with Jesus leads to good works like Jesus did. And we're not saved by our works. We're saved to our works by Jesus' work on the cross. Okay? So, how does this apply to your work specifically? 
let's remember that your work will include those things that you're paid for and those things that you're not paid for, those things you volunteer at and those things that you have no choice about if you're a mom, dad, or kid at home. Whatever your work may be. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, I definitely want you to hear me say that our work is a means by which we worship God. If you take that to heart and you apply that principle in whatever way it needs to be applied, well then it starts to change some things, right? It starts to change our thinking about some things. It starts to change our attitudes toward some things. Our work is bigger than just getting a paycheck. Our work is bigger than just a job we have to get by. It's a big deal because it's worship. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The thing to pick up on here is that all of our life is worship. We're worshiping in one way or another throughout our entire life. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 specifically addresses how we worship in the status of our work. Provides the framework for us. So let's back up to our passage again this morning. And let's see exactly what Paul instructs us to do. And that's going to be our application, right? That's going to be our takeaway from this morning. Let's see what we have in this passage here. Paul says this. I'm going to step through it step by step here for a minute. Paul says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So, so part of the way that we worship in our work is through obedience. We'll define that a little more in a second. He goes on to say, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Okay, so our worship and our work is really a heart issue. It's not something that's just external. And Paul goes on to say, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So, so it's actually working hard and being productive as opposed to pretending and make, making people think that we work hard. You would, you would never do that, right? It's rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, as Paul says here. So it's knowing that we're really obeying God when we do this. We're really serving God in the midst and the framework of our work. Knowing that whatever anyone, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So, so part of the way we worship is knowing that God will be pleased and that ultimately will be rewarded because of it. Then Paul closes by saying, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and, there, and that there is no partiality with him. So it's also recognizing that we, if we are the boss, then we too have a boss named Jesus. Recognizing that we're all the same, that the gospel is the great leveling field when we all stand before Jesus. We're all in need of his saving grace because of the work that he's done on the cross. So the way we worship Jesus as an employee or as an employer is exactly what's laid out in this passage here. So, so we obey. 
And what this essentially breaks down to is this, is us recognizing that the authority placed over us is placed there by God. Whatever authority there is in our life, Scripture is very clear that that authority is placed there by God, whether we like that authority or not, whether we're smarter than that authority or not, whether we can do a better job than that authority or not, that authority is placed there by God. And this is hard for us because we live in a culture and a time and a society where rebellion is celebrating, where a rebellion is celebrated and getting out from under authority is one of our ultimate goals in life. Because authority restricts us and holds us back. You're going to laugh about this, but it starts early. How many of you have ever seen the movie The Little Mermaid? Anybody? My daughters know The Little Mermaid very well. My daughters also know that in The Little Mermaid, what Ariel ultimately does is disobey her father to get out from under his authority to go do whatever she wanted to do. And it was all for love, right? Oh, so sweet. But even my seven-year-old recognizes that Ariel, by her actions, was disobeying her father. It starts early, right? My seven-year-old understands this. We may not like the authorities placed over us, But if we're believers, then we have to recognize that God places people in authority over us as a part of His sovereign will. And we don't have to be immoral or unethical or do anything illegal at at the direction of those people who are in authority over us. But in our work, in our job, part of worshiping is recognizing that we have a responsibility to obey by doing the job that we've been given to do. We recognize that even Jesus willingly subjected himself to the authority of the Father. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right before he died, he said, Father, if you will, take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. And so part of the way we worship as believers through our work, is recognizing that the authority that God places over us, whether it be in the home, whether it be in our workplace, whether it be wherever we are working, understanding that as believers, the way we respond to that authority is indicative of our worship. Okay? Everybody okay? Y'all still look really mad. I don't know why. Second, as we obey, we recognize that our heart attitude is important. Paul directs us in this passage to work with a sincere heart. Your worship through your work is primarily a heart issue. It's not primarily something external. It's more than just showing up and getting the job done. It's showing up, getting the job done, and doing it with a heart that recognizes that our work is worship. It's obedience that goes beyond mere Action. One of the things I try to teach um, my kids, I have two daughters, one of the things that I try to teach them is something that I learned a long time ago. I have sat through countless numbers of sermons in my lifetime, countless Bible classes, and um, there are only very few things from my youth that stick with me, even though I was in those classes for hours and hours and hours and hours. But one of my Bible teachers when I was growing up taught us that obedience is doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. 
And it stuck with me for a long time, and I teach it to my kids because I think it's great. So when I'm sitting at the table, and I tell my five-year-old, Laurel, I need you to get up and go to the bathroom and wash your hands because you've got Nutella all over your face and all over your hands. And she stands up, and she crosses her arms, and she pokes her lips out, and she stomps all the way to the bathroom. And she washes her hands. And in that moment, it's a perfect opportunity for me to teach her, baby, you're not obeying. You, you did what I asked. And you did it when I asked. But you didn't have the right heart attitude at all. You did it to avoid being disciplined. But you didn't do it as a response of obedience because your heart wanted to. What usually happens is I yell. What I should do is teach about heart attitudes. Doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do, with the right heart attitude. There's so many more stories I could give you about that. But in that moment, like I said, my child is obeying to avoid discipline rather than obeying to display obedience in response. So as believers, our hearts should desire to respond with obedience, not, not because we have to, but as a means of worship in response to Christ's work on our behalf to begin with. So we worship in our work by doing exactly what we're called to do as someone under authority, if we are under authority, by developing a heart attitude of worship. Third, we worship by being productive, by being the best that we can be, doing all that we can and producing and working and giving our best, not stealing time or slacking or looking for opportunities to cut corners. It's going all out and doing our best because that's what Christ did for us. And our response is the same. Remember, the gospel should affect every area of our life. And because we have been changed by the gospel, that should be reflected in our work. Because we've been changed by the work of Jesus who went all out for us, our work should display that same thing as a response to what Christ has done for us. Fourthly, we recognize that ultimately our authority is Jesus. It's just what Paul tells us in this passage. And so when we obey our bosses and do our jobs, then we're really obeying Jesus. Now, that changes everything, right? That changes everything. Paul says that our work should be done as work for Christ, not for any human supervisor. Because being a Christian means being radically Christ-centered and living that way. What you are asked to do by a supervisor should generally be viewed as an appeal straight from God Himself. Lest it be immoral, illegal, unethical, or just wrong. If it didn't fall into those other three categories. Fifthly, because we're really obeying Jesus, there's some type of reward that's going to come back our way. And, and Scripture doesn't define it, and I don't want you to think of it in terms of money because that would be wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean wealth or anything like that. It may just be that in the presence of God, because we're worshiping in our work, we're able to work understanding that we are doing it before the throne of God, and that changes everything. 
But it's pretty incredible when you think about it. Everything, everything you do that is good is seen and valued by the Lord. And He will pay you back for it. Not in the sense that you've earned anything by putting God in your debt. Because God owns you and the universe and the cattle on a thousand hills. He owes us nothing, but He freely, graciously chooses to reward good things done in faith. Nothing we do, not one thing is done in vain. Whatever good thing each one of us does, Paul tells us, they'll come back from the Lord. Finally, Paul reminds those of us in authority over others to remember to treat them like Jesus would. He reminds bosses that ultimately we're all alike. Jesus allows some to be in positions of authority, but there's no place for partiality. We all need Jesus just the same. So there's no need to lead and manage through a threatening demeanor. Because that's not how Jesus operates in authority over us. So, so ultimately, what we need to walk away from here understanding this morning is that in Ephesians chapter 6, the overarching thing to grasp is that our work is worship. And diving into that a little more, Paul lays out for us some very specific things about our work and how it relates to worship. That we worship in our work by obeying, by cultivating the right attitude, by uh, being productive and working hard, recognizing that in the midst of the authority, responding to the authority that God has placed over us, we're responding to Jesus Himself, that we're really obeying Jesus and we'll be rewarded for that. And if we are in positions of authority, we'll, well then that too as well is taken into account. As Paul says... Um, remember, both of you have the same master in heaven. So even if you're a boss, you got a boss. His name is Jesus. And in the ranking of the world, Jesus trumps everybody else. I don't know if you knew that or not. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, hopefully it leaves us with an understanding that our work is more than a means to an end. It's more than the way to get a paycheck and to live. It's more than a way to make money. It's more than a way to pay the bills. It's more than the way to take care of a household. It's worship. And above all else, why do we worship? We worship God to experience His presence, to make Him known to those around us. And when you worship God by your work, then you're making God known through your worship. If you're a believer, then you're different because God saved you and set you apart for His purposes, not your own. And part of those purposes are to make Him known. Your work is one way that that happens. One pastor has put it this way, we should be creative and industrious and excellent in all our work in order to adorn the gospel and do it in a way that Christ has shown to be more valuable than any of those other things. So ultimately, your work is a way in which we worship. And ultimately, our work is a way in which God is glorified as we respond. We good? Everybody got it? All right. I'm going to pray for us.
God, thank you for the opportunity to be reminded this morning that work is part of the plan that you have for us and that we all have jobs to do whether they're paid or not, whether they're volunteer positions or not, whether they're roles that you've given us as moms and dads or kids or whatever it might be. God, thank you for the reminder from your word that you've called us to worship through our work. God, thank you that you have provided for us the framework for how the gospel changes us in the midst of our jobs, whether we be under someone's authority or in positions of authority. God, I pray that as we walk away from here, these truths, these very practical things that you would help us to apply to our lives, that they would work themselves out in our life, God, even starting today. So God, we look forward to the way that you're going to change us because of this. Ultimately, we thank you for the gospel from which all change comes. God, we pray over the next few minutes as we spend some time responding to what you're doing in our hearts and lives that you would continue to work in our midst. And God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus.